Being able to tell those kinds of stories in, in a comedy space allows you to have the conversation where you might be yelling at each other and you might, you might not hear the conversation. So I think when you're, when you're in a comedy space, you can be open to listening. And I think that's probably the most important thing when you're trying to progress an argument or progress a conversation is being in a place where you can listen, where you can hear what is being said. And I think comedy allows you to do that. best version of us and how do we actually build it? I'm Lillian Spencer and you're listening to The Remakers. I've often thought that the more harrowing the topic, the more we need a gentle way in and humor for some reason seems to do that better than anything else. Laughter has even been shown to alleviate pain, with watching comedies recommended as supplementary treatment for everything from cancer to depression. It seems to have something to do with the way that laughing activates the parasympathetic nervous system, inhibiting fight or flight while encouraging our tend and befriend response, which seems like a pretty useful thing to encourage. I seem to remember things that I hear laughing in the same way that my brain remembers a really catchy song or latches onto a jingle. It just goes in deeper. And no matter how annoying my kids are being, if they suddenly start doubling over in bits of laughter, I have to rush in and see what's going on. Laughter, it seems, is magnetic. And that is why I'm so pleased to have on today Dan Illich, a very magnetic guy who's one of the leaders in a particular way of using humor as a force for good and for social change. Dan is the host of Irrational Fear, which is a podcast I highly recommend. It won the best comedy podcast in Australia for 2020. It's a weekly show. It tours live and features comedians and experts who rip apart the news and drill down on climate change in particular, which is something that Dan knows an awful lot about. His resume is way too long to list in full, but before Irrational Fear, he was working on At Home Alone Together, which is this pandemic-era lifestyle show for when nobody has a life. The show was built, shot, edited, and produced entirely in isolation, and it is totally hilarious. Before that, he worked on Tonightly with Tom Ballard, similar to The Daily Show, and before that, Hungry Beast. You guys, he's been busy. He has also worked for activist groups. He has worked extensively in America, something that we talk about. He has hosted radio. He's made a highly rated comedy series for Audible. And I wanted to interview Dan because he's more than just really funny, which is hard enough to do, but it's the way that he combines funny with fact and social commentary and social change that I find totally irresistible and I am totally jealous of. So we talk about how that evolved for him and we talk about the role of humor in bringing us together and making us laugh, busting our stress and deflating the things that scare us the most. I laughed so hard by the end of this episode that my face actually hurts. And I'm also warning you, I have very little as in zero chill at the start. My excitement levels are somewhere between cheerleader and puppy. But Dan, of course, handles it like a pro. Dan Illich, old friend, comedian, performer, writer, someone I have admired 
for a really long time. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the Remakers. How are you doing today? Uh, Lily, it is a thrill to be here to answer questions about my life. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me. It's really, um, it's really nice of you to ask, and um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to to find out if you can make me cry. Well, that is a high bar to set, my friend. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Andrew Denton can. So why can't you? That's it. I feel defeated from the start. Um, I know you're going to make me laugh, so I have no qualms about that. I wanted to have you on today to talk about humor as a sort of, this is going to be a nerdy term, but like as a theory of change, because I think you have carved out such an interesting and thoughtful career using comedy for social change, um, political satire and commentary, environmental awareness, climate change. But first, I just want to start with this little excerpt from an article that tickled me. So the article is published in the conversation. I'll link to it in the show notes. But it's about the changing way that psychologists see humor. So I'll just start reading. Quote, historically, psychologists framed humor negatively, suggesting it demonstrated superiority, vulgarity, Freudian id conflict, or defense mechanism to hide one's true feelings. In this view, an individual used humor to demean or disparage others or to inflate one's own self-worth, and as such, it was treated as an undesirable behavior to be avoided. But research on humor has come into the sunlight of late with humor now viewed as a character strength. I mean, it only took them, what, like a couple hundred years, right? Positive psychology, <laughs> a field that examines what people do well, notes that humor can be used to make others feel good, to gain intimacy or to help buffer stress. Along with gratitude, hope and spirituality, a sense of humor belongs to a set of strengths positive psychologists call transcendence. And together they help us forge connections to the world and provide meaning to life. So they're now saying it correlates with all these other strengths, such as wisdom and love of learning. For all these reasons, humor is now welcomed into mainstream and experimental psychology as a desirable behavior or skill researchers want to understand. How do we comprehend, appreciate, and produce humor? I mean, it's just a basic question to start us off. What do you reckon? That's lovely. You know, I did an interview with um, a journalist from Bega recently because we're taking my stage show, Irrational Fear, my podcast, Irrational Fear, to Bega, and we're going to be talking about bushfires. And the journalist was very much the former idea of that definition of humour. She was like, why, do you, why are you bringing a comedy show to Bega to talk about bushfires? Don't you know people are hurting here? I'm like, we're not going to come and make fun of people for surviving a bushfire or being relocated or, or, or trying to find homes. We're going to be making fun of the people who are – uh, who have led to this situation? You know, we're going to be making fun of the powerful people who, who aren't, who are seriously neglecting um, the most vulnerable people in society. Why, why do you think we're going to come here and make fun of people who have had their homes destroyed? It was such a weird line of questioning, and I think um, I, I really, I really was buoyed by that definition of humor because that's kind of what we try to do in the second part, which is we try to make people feel good. We try to gain intimacy. We try to learn more about somebody else's life. We try to buffer stress. Humor is a great cathartic tool for for bursting the bubble of stress, for for taking what is threatening and make it non-threatening. Um, and that's kind of what we try to do with our show anyway, Um or with this kind of work that I do in around satire is that is that kind of cathartic work. Try to find out what is the thing that people are most anxious about and then 
writing jokes about that. And that is for me the thrill and the joy and hopefully it makes people feel good about about the world around them eventually. Um, Or if not, just a slight reprieve. You know, before we dive too much more deeply into your sort of philosophy on on comedy, I would just love to hear a little bit about your early life. Like I've given our listeners a bit of an introduction to you overall and some of your work, but what were you like as a kid? Where did you grow up? Like, what do you think are some of those forces that shaped you? And when did you start to think, hey, maybe I could be funny? Well, I grew up on the streets of London as a chimney sweep and uh, I also had a one-man band and on the weekends I would play in the park and I met this lady. With Mary Poppins? With Mary Poppins. Oh, right. Uh, um, no. Story yeah. taken. Uh, <laughs> damn it. Now we're going to get sued by Disney. Yep. Do you know, you know the author of, a, of Mary Poppins was Australian, the, um, the woman who wrote that? I can't remember her name. Um, I grew up in Sydney's northwest suburbs and I'd say I had a pretty privileged kind of life. My That was unusual. My, my dad was a solicitor and my mum looked after him. My dad was also quadriplegic. Um, but I never kind of really thought much about his disability in any kind of meaningful way. I never kind of thought dad was disabled at all. But what dad was, he was really funny. And he was really, he still is very funny. He's still alive, thank God. Um, and he's hes very funny. He's very sarcastic. He's very facetious. But he's also got an incredible heart and a sense of justice. And it was interesting that at the time I didn't really recognise what was happening, but a lot of new Australians would be coming through his door to kind of, and to kind of make their way in Australia. And Dad himself was a migrant. Uh, come, he came from Germany. His his parents were Serbian, and they kind of escaped post-war Germany, um, post-war. And he was a lawyer who was doing the allowing, using his his power to help new Australians kind of make their way in Australia. And I kind of thought, I kind of think about that now and think, oh wow, so many so many people of colour went through Dad's office. So many, uh, so, so many people who. I'm just eternally grateful for Dad helping them with their visas and their and their way making their way in Australia. That it's it's one of those things where I'm like, wow, that's such a great, powerful thing Dad did for so many people. And I, Dad also made money. Like he was he was a, he was a lawyer for other companies as well. But these were kind of off the clock clients. These were client kind of clients that would turn up at seven o'clock at night and things like that. And I I kind of thought. I kind of been thinking a little bit about that lately. I'm like, wow, dad, dad did a lot for people. And I think mum also by looking after dad served, served those people as well and served, um, served others around her through her church. And I think kind of, I think that has kind of filtered through to me. Like I feel like a sense of, a little bit of a sense of service through the comedy I make um, because I think it's, I think, yeah, I don't think I'm not getting paid for it. You know, like I'm not I'm not going to build a house out of this. So it really is service. People really like it. They like listening to it. They like enjoying it. They like you know. But I feel like through some kind of way, I'm kind of helping, kind of doing my part of justice, serving justice through through the comedy I make. But I don't know if that's you know if that's anything. But anyway, and growing up, I always was. 
a really funny kid, I have to say. I was very funny. I believe that. I was that. very, very funny. Uh, I, was, I was performing from a very early age. Um, I, the first job on TV was on a TV show called Romper Room, which was on Channel 7. I was five years old and I went on Channel, I went on channel 7 on Romper Room, which was this kid's show with a whole bunch of other kids and you would play games on television, you would drink milk, you would listen to stories read by the host and I just loved it. I thought it was great. How did you get on television at the age of five where your parents like just like this kid is hilarious we've got to try to get him in front of a camera well where we grew up we grew up in Beecroft and Channel 7 was in Epping was in Carlingford at the time so it was like you know it's like next door so I think you know in the local area Channel 7 was always despo for kids to come and do the show because they needed you know x amount of kids every episode every day for for years so just the the region's kids were funneled through um channel seven so if you grew up in the northwestern suburbs of sydney you went and did romper room that was just one of the things you there was a rite of passage for the area i love it that's where i live now i've got to obviously get my kids you know in front of the camera sooner rather than later I'll have you know, unfortunately, Channel 7 has now moved to Redfern. Oh, so, uh, <laughs> But how can I explain the brilliance? We are kidding. We are kidding. You've got TikTok now. You, that's, what, that's, what, that's, what, that's what that's for. Uh, and I distinctly remember getting ready for that show, getting in a nice stripy shirt, uh, very grey pants, and mum spraying hairspray on me for the first time. Mum even put makeup on me, and I was like, what is this? <laughs> And I thoroughly loved it. It was great. I remember waiting in the foyer at Channel 7, looking at the teletext machine, looking at going, wow, this is a television with text on it. This is incredible. Um, and and then going on the show itself was also very fun. Um, and then I kind of started to fall into musical theatre through an unusual route. I kind of um, joined, I was in Scouts for many years and then went, to, went along to this thing called Gang Show, which was a Scout and Guide production at the Parramatta Riverside Theatre. I remember 1992, I saw my first gang show and I thought, those kids look like they're having the best fun. I want to do what they're doing. And inside the program was a little slip that you could fill out to audition to be part of gang show. And I'm like, I'm a scout. I can do that. So I did. And I joined gang show and I became, and I was in gang show for 11 years. So I, from like age, age, <laughs> age 10 to age 21, I was, uh, I was in gang show learning how to, uh, not just not kind of be comfortable on stage, which I very much was, but I kind of learned the art of um, dealing with volunteers and dealing with um, adults and working in teams and um, getting a lot out of people for nothing which turns out if you work at the ABC is a skill you need to have. Um, so it was it was one of those amazing things where the show wasn't particularly great, you know, if you were being objective. But if you were on stage, it was the coolest thing you've ever done and, like, for kids it was – uh, it was the best thing to do because you were on stage, the light was being shone on you, you were being amplified, your parents could see you. And I got to be in a few sketches and the sketches were the best part of the show because it was the funny stuff. Um, and I loved all the funny. I loved comedians from when I was a little boy. Like dad used to have records uh, of uh, – Wayne and Schuster, Bob Hope, Stan Freeberg, wow. Monty Python. There'd be all these records in Dad's al album collection and I would listen to them on end, just the comedy ones because, you know, stuff the music. It's just the com the comedy ones were the most important records of the day. I've still got, thankfully, um, I salvaged some before Mum and Dad moved to a nursing home, so I've got some of those comedy records, um, which is great. And so it's one of those things where 
uh, I've always wanted to do comedy. I always um, wanted to get into it. And then when I when Gangster came around, I was like, oh, I'm going to get into comedy. Yes, fantastic. And as a little boy, all I wanted to do was be an actor on television and do like full frontal esque sketches or fast forward esque sketches. And then uh, later on, when I was in, in primary school, all I wanted to do was be in a show like The Late Show on, on the DJ's Late Show. And, uh, and it's, it's funny now turning 40 this year, looking back at those dreams as a kid and going, fuck, I've done, I've done like a lot of that stuff. I like, I haven't, like, I'm not particularly famous or some people can stop me in the street, but like, I'm not, I'm not like Hamish Blake. I don't own 10 houses, but it's, it's one of those things where like the dreams I had for myself as a kid, I've, I've managed to do like what I used to think was impossible uh, slowly over 15 years. I've kind of managed to be on TV show, be in a sketch comedy show, be on a show like the late show, kind of build my own kind of um, uh, my own product and try and get that up on TV. And so there's, uh, the, it's really fun for me to kind of be in that space. But at the same time, um, Lily, like, you know, like the other side of me, which is like this activism side. So I've kind of had this, um, professional kind of comedy side. And then I try to explain people my career. I'm like, yeah, but at the same time as I was doing this, I was also, you know, in it, get up, making satirical sketches, trying to get campaigns going, trying to do this, trying to change this, trying to change that, working with this group, working with that group to try and work on these campaigns. And so it's kind of this dichotomy where I haven't actually done it's really hard to kind of go, oh, I've done this one funny thing, but then I've also done this other funny thing, which is kind of a, a different kind of funny thing, which is like the campaigning side of what I've done in my career. And now uh, I'm at an age where I've started kind of creating a vehicle where maybe both those things come together. So that's kind of that's kind of where we're at now. It's almost like you had to create that vehicle just so you didn't have to explain yourself all the time. Like explain your activism to your comedy friends and explain your comedy to your activism friends because- that's exactly right. That's exact. That is so true. Like, it's just like because they're to- totally different. Because people don't speak other other silos languages. Like the activism people don't understand television, and the television people, television comedy people don't understand activism. And so, yeah, it's like having yeah, it's like having two different worlds. So I, I haven't kind of. I think you've unlocked it here in this conversation about why irrational fear exists. <laughs> I haven't really considered it as the merging of those two worlds. Um, I'm just trying to aggressively do what I like doing. That's all I'm trying to do. And you've also done some good work in lots of other interesting and hard spaces, um, supporting refugees, for instance, or working with GetUp to talk about Guantanamo Bay and an Australian that was being held there without a trial. Can you tell us a little bit of that story? The, the first video I made for Get Up was David Hicks's Cribs um, yeah. because yeah, I, was fl- I, I was flying back from Los Angeles to Sydney after going and to- And you a, met Major Mori. Uh, he was on the plane. He was sitting next to me. So let me just pause for a sec. Major Mori was the lawyer for an Australian who had been picked up in Afghanistan, was it, I believe, going back in the memory yeah. banks. And, and then he had been sent to Guantanamo Bay. And so at the time, all these other countries had basically said, okay, we'll have our citizens back, please. You can't just keep our citizens indefinitely in Guantanamo Bay. We want to bring them back and have a trial in our own country. And the Australian government had not. And so this Australian <laughs> was sitting there in Guantanamo Bay for years. And that was when I was working with GetUp and we decided that we wanted to try to create a campaign to see if we could bring him back for a fair trial in Australia. Yeah. Um, and Major Murray is an incredible dude. Like yeah, this he became beloved. Principal- yeah, principal character guy stuck in this incredible kangaroo court system, um, and 
so fascinating, like a, a extremely extrovert character, uh, wonderful to sit next to on a plane. <laughs> and uh, we were just talking about comedy. I was trying to talk to him about all the stuff I've made, like showing my clips from TV shows on laptops. He's like, hey, well, you should do something for us. And I'm like, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, okay, all right, let me think about this. Great, great. And so that's when um, I teamed up with Get Up and we made uh, David Hicks's Cribs, which was a parody of MTV's Cribs set in Guantanamo Bay, uh, <laughs> which is <laughs> which is crazy to think about now. Um, but it was a really funny Really funny bit of content that raised a bunch of money. It did, um, yeah. Thank you. Forget up. Hey, no worries. Yeah. Um. Well, okay. So so let's fast forward a little bit to today and and this show, Irrational Fear. Now that you have been doing, um, it was a live show. Then COVID hit and it became a podcast. But now you're taking it back on the road, which I love. So it is a sort of comedy show about the news, which is you know anyone who's familiar with the Daily Show or other various iterations, many of which you worked on here in Australia would kind of get that idea. But you're also like particularly honed in on climate change as a kind of core thing that you talk about. There are not many comedians, my friend, who specialize in climate change communications. I think you might be in the, you know, I'm not, like, there are plenty who talk about it as part of like, ah, oh, shit, scary, the world, the news. But like, this is actually a real passion for you. And, you know, your love of comedy was there for a long time. How did this love of comedy intertwine with a fear of climate change? How did you decide to make this like a core thing that you wanted to talk about? We started the show in 2012 and it was straight after another TV show I did called Hungry Beast. And I'd been wanting to pilot this idea for television. So it started off as an idea that I'd always wanted to get on TV. And it was kind of like out of frustration because there was nothing that existed at the time. The media wasn't really talking about it. The name itself, A Rational Fear, comes from the idea that the media is making us scared of lots of different things. But the only thing they're not talking about is the most is the scariest thing we should be talking about, which is climate change. So uh, if, we t- if we talk about the all the irrational fears, that's the media, and the irrational fear that isn't being covered in the media back then is climate change. It is now, thankfully. Um, but so from day one with irrational fear, we tried to uh, make it a broad platform for comedy and to, for comedians to say something about the world, but also always have a space for climate change. And that was, that was important. So it was a wider funnel to climate change than if we just called it a climate change show. Um, and I don't, I still don't think it's a pure climate change show. We've kind of focused it more this year, particularly be, thanks to the Bertha Fellowship. Like we've managed to kind of um, put more emphasis on it and going once a month with the greatest moral podcast of our generation where we talk to climate leaders has really helped that. And people love those interviews. So um, it's really helped us find an audience who care and that's really great. So that's kind of that's kind of the mechanism. We, I wanted to create a platform for comedians to say something about the world and talk about climate change as we did it. And hopefully the audience who might not be right across climate but are interested in, you know, toolies at schoolies can still come and enjoy uh, enjoy the show and learn about climate change at the same time. And as and also because I wanted to know more, like I wanted to understand more, um, I was I was looking at old DMs the other day of when I was like first DM'd Simon Holmes a court. Like I DM'd him about 10 years ago uh, and I was like, Simon, I want to learn more about energy. How do I learn more about energy? <laughs> and he's like, oh, read this article. Um, <laughs> and so like that was really funny to me just to 
I've recent Simon was on our was on our show last in Melbourne for the comedy festival, and I was going through old DMs, and I was like, oh wow, like I've been talking to Simon for ten years about about energy. So now like I'm trying to learn as much as I can, and so I can digest that and spin that out as comedy for the audience. Like I'm doing. Um, online courses about green finance and online courses about sustainability and how to mitigate and adapt to climate change, how companies can offset carbon. So I've done like a whole stack of online courses, getting myself accredited for a job I'll never have just so I can make comedy about it uh, and understand it, but also understand that people's own knowledge about the stuff is very low. And so just to kind of, if I have the high, if I have as much knowledge as I can, I can then pull it in when it, when I need to bring it in to kind of add context to something. And yeah, so it, we can just talk broad jokes and do broad, broad comedy and then go, well, here's, you know, here's why that exists. That exists because of X, yeah. you know. Like I've got this quote from you in an article. You say, when you combine a joke with a fact, you create something called an info bomb and an info bomb explodes in the mind. They can help people think about things they might not normally think about, but in a way that delights them. I make jokes about the saddest things. I thought that was so interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and yeah, I've waxed and waned on that. I don't know how I feel about that anymore, um, but I'm back. I think I'm back into it. Uh, I think the problem for me was communications mediums. Um, so social media really killed, killed that notion for me for a little bit. I think uh, Big social media organisations are starting to become better actors and uh, starting to fix their their problems with their algorithms. Um, but particularly in the early days of Trump, I was like, wow, we are algorithmically shut off from everyone else. Back in the olden days, you would put out a video and lots of people would see it. But back in but now you put out a video and the people that like that video will see it. Um, so the reach to kind of reach people who disagree with you the opportunity to reach people who disagree with you is now smaller than ever before because of the way these big media vehicles are structured. And I think in many respects, that's why I don't mind television so much because television still hits a lot of people who may or may not agree with you. Um, and so that's the opportunity to, to share, share comedy and share points of view that people might not be exposed to. Um, particularly on free to air television and, you know, you're not doing this sort of Fox news or the alt left cable channels. Like, I think that's part of why America is so splintered is we just have too many freaking channels, people like in Australia, you still have people are like all watching kind of the same five channels plus Netflix and all the things. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, my dream would be to get a rational fear, not up on the ABC. My dream would be to get a rational fear up on a commercial network that, you know, people will watch after the block, you know, like you know, that's the. Are you listening network executives? Please call this man. <laughs> He's very funny. Yeah. Yeah. So like, it's, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, we do the, effectively we do the same function as news, um, but we do it with with a comedy spin, hopefully people will pay attention to it in a way that they may not, they may let the news wash over them or the news is too hard to understand. So that's comedy allows you to communicate at, a, at an emotional level. And we do have a point of view. I don't, I don't shy away from having a point of view because having a point of view allows you to make jokes. If you don't have a point of view, it's very difficult to make jokes. Oh man. I want to ask you like 10,000 follow-up questions to that. Um, 
you know, because I think that the the most high profile examples of like, you know, political satire are things like The Daily Show in the US or The Chaser in Australia. But of course, people with a point of view have been using humor and comedy to kind of speak truth to power or talk about difficult things since like probably forever and to achieve a, a designated aim. So like one of my favorite examples of this is back in the 1940s in the US, they had defeated Hitler and Superman, Superman needed a new enemy. So this was on radio, right? The like, and you can listen to the files. They're amazing. It's like the old 1940s voice and like the ads for cereal. And, and Superman needed this new enemy. And there's Cereal the food, not cereal yeah, the cereal podcast, the food. of course. And, yeah. and so there's this guy who has noticed that there is this resurgence in the Ku Klux Klan in America happening around him. They burned this huge cross on like his neighborhood and he got freaked out. And so he decides he's going to infiltrate the clan and learn their secrets. So he goes and he infiltrates the clan and he learns all of their like weird little code words that they use to identify clansmen and all this kind of stuff. And he takes it to the local authorities and he says to them, I've got the inside scoop on the Ku Klux Klan. Let's go let's go fight them. And the local authorities are too afraid that the clan is too powerful. So he takes it to the producers of Superman and says, do you need a new villain? And they say, why? Yes, yes, we do. And so they create this whole plot where Jimmy Olsen, yeah, the, you know, the plucky kid, he's gone to become this like little league coach. And (laughs) there's this kid who gets kicked off the team and the new star pitcher is black and the kid who gets kicked off the team is mad. And so he goes and joins the clan and and then Jimmy calls Superman to help defeat the clan. And suddenly (laughs) like the clansmen's kids are listening to Superman taking on clansmen and using all their code words and kind of making fun of them. And it totally changed the dynamic. Like there recruitment literally dries up and it's now been written about as like one of these, you know, single most effective interventions we could have. Oh my God. That's great. I mean, it's so straight right now. Well, today that would be a TikTok account and, uh, <laughs> and it would have to be really funny and under a minute. And, uh, <laughs> it's true. It's true. And I mean, you know, and even more recently than that, like, um, which I also thought was like super brave. So there was this show on Iraqi state TV called State of Superstition. And it was this hit comedy show making fun of ISIS. And so the main character is like this ISIS, the beheader guy. And all, no, seriously. And all the actors are wearing these like ridiculously tangled, crazy beards. And they, you know, they play a game of soccer and they just end up killing the opposite team. Like it's this crazy, but it's, it's, it's turning this at the height. I mean, this was being, played at the height of like their power in Iraq and Syria. People were really scared. There was a lot of real horror going on. And they're like, we are not going to put these people on a pedestal as these evil villain masterminds. We are going to make them buffoons. And I just think, wow, that is a really underrated theory of change. Like we tend to talk about terrorism or far left or far right extremists as these like crazy, sinister, evil masterminds, these lone wolves. Like maybe we should be making them buffoons. Like maybe we should be making them at least human beings who are like fallible that you can laugh at, that you can take down a peg. But I look, I look, I totally agree with you. And there's, there's, there's tons of situations like particularly in comedy where um, that's been the case where you can you can take out the, um, you can, you can almost defuse a conversation with comedy, um, in a way that you can't do with anything else. Um, you know, it's, 
Uh, Hogan's Heroes is a is a dumb example because it happened ten years after, like fifteen years after World War Two. But like the Germans have, <laughs> you can It's hard to perceive the Germans in anything but the bumbling idiots after you watch Hogan's Heroes. Another interesting one is a is a sketch comedy show out of Israel called Shabbos, um, which is a. a a show set in a prison um, with Israeli and Palestinians, and it's it's a, such a funny, um, such a funny show where everybody is hilarious in it, and it's it's the the most the biggest tension in the world boiled down to this microcosm of a, of a of a prison, and it's it's the they look at macro. They in Shabbos they look at macro politics in this micro place, and it's. It's intense and it's funny and it's just, it's also sad. Um, but being able to tell those kinds of stories in in a comedy space allows you to have the conversation where you might be yelling at each other and you not, might not hear the conversation. So I think when you're, when you're in a comedy space, you can be open to listening. And I think that's probably the most important thing when you're trying to progress an argument or progress a conversation is being in a place where you can listen, where you can hear what is being said. And I think comedy allows you to do that. Like that's, that's, that's what I, that's kind of what I think. Um, I think there's science uh, that backs you up on that. Like, no, true, like actual science, like that, that when we're laughing, we aren't judging because if you're laughing, your parasympathetic nervous system is being activated, which is your tend and befriend response, right? So you're chilling out, you're leaning in. Um, and that is the opposite of having your defenses up. That is the opposite of our sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight response that makes us want to armor up and go, no, screw you. You're wrong. I'm right. How dare yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that's uh, yeah. I well, if you say so, I mean, I believe it. I've read it on the internet, so it must be true. <laughs> it must be true. Yeah, I need to do more. I don't know if I do need to do more research on the academics. No, you're just doing comedy. <laughs> Let the rest of us who can't be funny research the academics about it, and you go on doing it, please. <laughs> if you're enjoying this conversation and want more, you can check out our website, AustraliaRemade.org really doesn't matter where you live because this website has some pretty universal themes and stories and a beautiful vision that we wove together from listening to people from all walks of life answer the question, imagine you have woken up in the country of your dreams, what is it like? So I hope there'll be something there that will resonate or inspire you. Uh, We would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, ideas, or feedback, the podcast email is podcast at australiaremade.org. Thanks. curious for you personally, like, you know, climate change is scary. The the news, the, the world, there, there are horrible things happening all the time. How does it help you personally comedy? Like, do you feel, do you feel like you're more able to take in the news and process your own feelings about things because you can turn it into something kind of useful and, and, and into an emotion that you can actually sit with? I think it seriously helps me understand the news because you every particularly doing it weekly like doing this year's been been really strange so I used to run tonightly which was a the nightly TV show it's kind of like a daily show in Australia run host, hosted by Tom Ballard and when I came back to Australia I started off as a director on that and then ended up taking it over as the showrunner and um 
and doing shows like that and doing shows like Irrational Fear where you're forced to look at it at a regular cadence, what's happening in the news, you can uh, deeply understand long narratives that are forming in our society. And by, by understanding what's happening in our world over a long period of time, you can then join the dots for things that, ex- that existed in the past and see the cause and effect of um, things in the past to where we are today. And so that does help me process the news, helps me understand uh, what other, how the big forces of the world are kind of shaping our world today. And it also helps me think about where we need to go in the future and like how we need to communicate in the future, how we need to progress climate action to kind of get to where we need to be in the future. And it's great to have these goals and understand what our targets are, but what really needs to happen is the execution of policy to kind of get us to those places. And so at every step of the way, whenever you see a new gas plant or a new or a new coal plant or a new uh, X fossil fuel development happen, you can trace it back to the moment where it was announced or where where how it happened or who donated to who. And so that allows me to kind of see, well, whether uh, whether something that it that has been announced as a going concern or whether it's actually going to fall on its face. Um, so it's, it's just one of those things that allows me to help, helps me process, um, the world around us. I, I think, I think I do it to kind of synthesize how the world is operating. Um, I'm looking forward to a break. Like it, it hurts my head. Like I think many journalists express this idea of PTSD from covering, the news for too long. And I think I've got it as well a little bit, um, particularly when I was in the U S working uh, at fusion and working during, <laughs> during the, 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 Trump, the Trump years. Um, and it's one of those things where, uh, but after a month of like having a, a time off and being in la la land and watching films and TV and, you know, uh, getting disconnected from the news, all I want to do is get back into it again. Um, cause I'm like, I'm disconnected. I don't know what's happening. I've got to get back into it. So part of it is, Part of it is for me to understand, and if I'm if I can communicate it to other people, then I need to understand what's going on. So it's um yeah, I think that's does that yeah that does no that, that's does good. That answer your it question? does it does. I mean, and I, let's talk about your time in America because you were there for the 2016 campaign, and and Donald Trump becomes elected, and you know I want to I want to understand your perspective there as like you must have felt a little bit like you were in the eye of the storm and. You know, you're over there making videos like introducing Apple's thinnest product ever, which was its tax bill. Um, What was weird to you about being in America as an outsider and what felt kind of surprisingly normal? America's scale is so vast and... um I had the immense privilege of kind of being part of a large apparatus that dropped me in the middle of middle of the eye of the storm of, of the American political system in 2015, 2016. Um, my first day working at Fusion, I dumped my bags in the office and flew to Cleveland to go to the Republican National Convention um, where we had a team meeting with our Fusion meeting and they decked us out in in riot gear <laughs> that we could borrow in case there were riots in Cleveland during the Republican National Convention and there weren't any. Um, but it was so bizarre being I'd been to convention cities during the times of convention. So the last convention I went to was the 2008 DNC in Denver, uh, but I hadn't gone inside the convention centre. I'd just kind of been in the city for it, um, which was a huge spectacle in its own right, a huge carnival of political nerd 
kind of world. Um, and then I, when I went to when I went to RNC in Cleveland, I got to go inside the convention center and kind of see this gigantic apparatus, this kind of this dog and pony show, which happens for a week where, where they all get up and they all give speeches about how great um, their party is and how great America is and how they're the ones that will lead America to greatness. And it's, uh, it's so fascinating to kind of see that because that just doesn't happen in Australia. Like there is no primary kind of voting system in Australian parties. Well, there is for Labor now. And I don't know if you remember the first Labor primary voting system after like, the Rudd-Gillard years and where Albanese took the leadership. It was like in a conference room I was going to say, I don't Canberra, think it was particularly memorable. <laughs> and it was like, you know, him talking to 50 people and that was it. Like it wasn't, it wasn't the There was no the pageantry. RNC. There was no pageantry and you didn't have, all, you didn't have, you know, <laughs> you didn't have states giving their votes, you know, over the microphone. We're from the great state of X and we're going to give our votes to Donald Trump. Woo! There was none of that. Um, but My people was, like a show. What can I say? Yeah. Your people do like a show. I, I, that's why I love America. It's so fun. Um, but I was really scared when Trump gave his, in, gave his speech at the at the RNC. I was I was like in I was I was in like the media gallery listening to Trump's speech and it was the most terrifying thing I'd ever heard and people were cheering all around me and I'm like what world are you all living in that you believe this stuff that he's saying about law and order and crime and and it was just and uh, it was so bizarre uh, and people were cheering as if they were going to war and I just, I was, it made me feel unsecure about the world. Conversely, the week later at the DNC when Hillary spoke, <laughs> this, this is showing my political colours, I'm like, oh, thank God, you know, far out. She she makes so much more sense than that Donald Trump guy. Hillary's got this in the bag. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, that's a good segue in a way to this kind of, I feel like is the hardest nut to crack of this, which is how do we use humor and political satire in a way that doesn't just fuel polarization? And is that even possible? Because the danger of making fun of a, a Trump or in Australia, a sort of a Clive Palmer or not, yeah, Pauline Hansen is you sort of, you can easily be seen as, um, just making fun of their supporters, right? It's like, oh, you elitist, oh, you terrible people. We don't want to live, everyone agrees that we don't want to live in a polarized society. Everyone agrees that we don't want to live in opposing camps of us versus them. Do you think it's possible to use humor in a way that, that if anything, tries to bring people together or that at least doesn't make that polarization worse? I think if you're using humor the right way, like if you're making fun of the hypocrisy of of people in power, then that shouldn't be polarizing. <laughs> you know what? Here's here's my this is tell me. You know, you lived in Australia a very long time, so you tell me if this is the right take. I, I think this is how how I see Australia versus America in terms of the democratic system is this. I feel like Australia has a huge swinging voter populace of people that fold their arms and go, all right, all right, dickhead, prove it, you know, and that's, and thank God we all are forced to vote because I don't think without 
compulsory voting, you have that huge swing voting public who who are calling bullshit on the politicians. Um, whereas in America, to vote, you have to register with a party to vote, which is also antithesis of democracy. I don't understand that. You have to so register with a party to vote in the primary. So if you want to have a say over who the party leader is, but yes. Yeah, and, and voting is obviously optional. You don't get fined like you do here if you don't turn up. Yeah, and voting is optional and voting is hard and there's voter suppression and there's all, all these things that stop people from voting. And if you, ha- if you, if you vote, you have to be the most passionate supporter in order to kind of cast your vote. Whereas I feel like in Australia, compulsory voting means there's a huge middle of people who go, all right, dickhead, prove it. You know, like I, that's, that's my, that's my take. I don't know. How do you feel? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think compulsory voting, the best thing about it is that it puts, it says to people, one, citizenship is a responsibility, not just a right. So it gets people thinking a little bit and that kind of mutual obligation. And the way it works is, you know, you just have to rock up. So you can still, once you've gotten your name ticked off, you can still write in none of the above or draw a stupid picture or whatever, but you have to front up. There's then an obligation on the government to make voting really, really easy. And I've always been amazed because whenever I read about, you know, I've only ever been able to vote in U.S. elections from abroad. But the the narrative is it's so hard. You stand in line for hours. It sucks. It's so unpleasant. The results don't matter because it's all been gerrymandered. Like we make it sound pretty unappealing. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, there's this whole politics in the U.S. that is about riling up your base to turn out the vote. Whereas in Australia, it's all about winning those people in the middle to think that, you know, they should give you a go this time. And I do think that that makes the politics in Australia less acrimonious and more kind of centrist than obviously it is in the US. That and the fact that you don't have to be a billionaire to run for office here. Like we have (laughs) publicly financed elections. Um, There's actually, there's too much extra money in them, you know, from other sources, but at least there's a base You just have to know a billionaire. You You just just have have to know know one. That's right. You just have to kind of get into their good books. Um, What did you learn from observing and, and interacting with and talking to people? Like I've got Trump voters in my family for sure. And people who, you know, are really like sincere, um, you know, off building homes for Habitat for Humanity have served their country in the armed forces. Like they just, I think there's an identity of, but I am Republican. Like I, I, I can't, you know, what do you want from me? Like this is what, and they might not be a huge fan of Trump where they might be, but you know, I guess when I think about Trump voters, I don't think about a caricature. I think about people that I like know and love. And I'm curious for you, like, did you, were you surprised by what you learned or did you feel like you gained some insight into that way of thinking while you were over there? Oh, no. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Honestly, like, I don't, I honestly don't think I learned anything. <laughs> I spent, I've lived a lot in America. Uh, in 2010, I hitchhiked from Seattle to New York. And I met lots of different kinds of people. And everyone in America is so nice. And I really honestly, the privilege of being a white guy in America really shone a lot on me. Like, uh, like who does that? Who goes to Seattle and decides they're going to hitchhike from Seattle to New York? Um, and so, and what I've, what I learned is that people are generally pretty good everywhere. Um, and I'm going to sound like a politician now. There is more that unites us than divides us. (laughs) And it's, I think that sentiment is true. And I feel like the polarization in America is a real sickness and it stems from 
maybe a few individuals at the top that are more interested in holding on to power than actually getting things done. We call um, them conflict merchants. There's a term apparently. Because you can oh, wow. build a career yeah. on this. Like the system yeah, is totally. incentivized. You can make a lot of money. Your Ted Cruz's, your Mitch McConnell's, you know, those folks ingrained in the system there to kind of not not actually be good actors but actually uh, just make life as hell as possible for everyone until they're back in power. And I think that's I think that's interesting. I feel like the filibuster is interesting. I feel like systemically there's big problems that could be fixed with ending gerrymandering, getting rid of the filibuster, allowing compulsory voting, reforming, <laughs> reforming democracy as a whole. I feel like America is, yeah, there's so many things systematically that could just make America, you do five things in America would be a great country, you know. Because it's this what you say to people. It's like, it's not like people are any inherently more violent or whatever. It's just like, don't make it so easy to go in and buy an assault rifle. Oh yeah, just don't make this so easy. And the other, I mean, the other thing that we're living in America, the thing that had me on edge every minute of the day was health insurance. And it's, I would say 25% of the conversations I had in the office were about health insurance with people. People were just talking about their health insurance endlessly. And it's only until you leave that, that society that you realize, oh shit, that's a real fucked up problem that People have, have have reserved so much of their brain space for dealing with um, what potential things could go wrong in their lives in the next few years that they have to maintain a job they hate. They can't take a risk in building their own life. They can't. And that is, that made me so grateful to be home. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, because I wanted to freelance in America, but my health insurance was crazy amount. Like it was, you know, a thousand bucks a month or something yeah, like that. Yeah. It's like and another like, mortgage if you're self-employed. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I, I can't afford that. Um, so I might as well come home and work. Um, yeah, no, it was interesting. Yeah. Anyway, look, I think that's, there's it just, it's just like some really big, some really big systemic problems in America that uh, is low hanging fruit that can be fixed. And it's, um, it's so striking that it doesn't. It's a remarkable that America has lasted so long. <laughs> Well, you know, on the plus side, I do feel like uh, as, as someone who, you know, grew up in the 80s and um, has, has sort of been, you know, pretty f- interested in politics since since I was a teenager and paid attention, I feel like this is the first time that I have heard so much talk of actual policy and systemic change during an election. Like elections were just places where people stood up and gave platitudes and, you know, spoke in grandiose terms, but there was no talk about big systemic change. Thank you, Elizabeth Warren. Or, you know, so it, like it started a little bit last time, but I feel like this, this last one, you know, 2016 and 2020, but 2020 in particular, it was like, damn, we're actually talking about this stuff. Yeah. And it's really interesting to see just how earnest, um, president Biden is in operating on climate action, uh, and, and racial justice and, and electoral reform. So these, these things are on the table and, um, I really hope they can do as much as they can before, before they can't, uh, climate action is such, is, is, is the biggest one on my, at the top of my list. Um, and it's so great to see Australia being embarrassed on a national, on, a, on an international level at the moment. <laughs> and like with, with, with the way that um, America has once again taken up leadership in the space in the world um, and coming into COP26, uh, I think America is still going to um, be in that leadership position and I think it's, it's, it's kind of exciting and refreshing but also 
relaxing. Like it's one of those things where it's like, oh, good, we're just back to back to normal politics, like back to getting things done, um, and we don't have to worry about the end of the world <laughs> because because Trump and Stephen Miller and his cohort are slowly dismantling the world. to go back to, to this comment that you kind of alluded to at the start, because I'm quite fascinated when you were sort of saying your views about taking really sad stuff and kind of wrapping a joke around it have maybe changed. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. I think working during the Trump times and trying to make constant satire during the Trump years for an American organization in America had really taken a toll on me because America was such um, such a polluted media environment that I found it difficult to create work that I thought was doing any good in any kind of way or galvanizing an audience in a meaningful, honest way. Um, and so what we would, my theory is when I create stuff is I do take the kind of the saddest points of a story and put them in order and then try and figure out how to make each one of them funny or desensitize or, or not desensitize, but, um, take the threat out of each one of those anxieties one by one. And in doing so, people can, can laugh at each of those things and be that in a generic way. Um, like when I say generic way, like I mean, using genre to do that. So, um, making a very pretty genre mixed with a very sad fact is an easiest way of doing comedy. It's just, you know, it's basically sarcasm. Uh, and, uh, when people say, oh, well, you know, Oscar Wilde said sarcasm is the lowest form of wit. He was actually making, he was being sarcastic. It's actually, (laughs) it's actually the, it's actually the highest form of wit. He was actually joking. It was a joke. Sarcasm is the highest form of wit. Um, and it's, um, yeah, so I think that's kind of what I mean when I when I say take the saddest things and try and make them, give them a twist to make them funny. And and how and how you do that within a sketch composition is that you you try to lead with your biggest laugh because particularly online. Anyway, this is what I do. Online, you only have three seconds to kind of make an impression um, because after those three seconds, people have already moved on. So if if you can't kind of get what we call the game of the sketch or the game of the, of, of the story out first in the first three seconds, then people are confused and actually move on there and their, their patience with the content disappears. Unless it's now that rule doesn't apply to everything. Like it's one of those things where if people are so angry about something or so confused about something or don't understand an issue or can't understand where we're at, they will sit with a bit of content for a lot longer uh, if you can provide them value every step of the way. So to kind of give you an example of that, after the 2019-2020 bushfires, I was so confused and angry about the situation that led us to this position, having Australia's track record of climate action really coming to a real pinpoint 
of disaster for the whole country up and down the East Coast and everywhere in South Australia, Western Australia, the whole country was on fire. In 2019, in December, I flew from Sydney to Kuala Lumpur and I was seeing smoke for hours and hours and hours in a plane flying out of the country. And that was our smoke. And it was, it was so strange returning and trying to feel feel a way that I can use my power to kind of understand the situation we're in in more. So I was sitting on Bondo Beach with ash falling around me and I was just thinking, I just need to, I know I can't, I like Scott Morrison, Lily, I can't hold a hose, mate. Uh, what can I do? I can make a comedy video. <laughs> and so that's what we did. So I managed to, sitting on the beach with ash falling around me, I texted a bunch of people to try and figure out what we could do. And I texted um, Kara Schlegel, who's a great writer and researcher. I texted um, uh, Alex Gabbett, who's an incredible motion graphic designer. Marie Yanofsky, who's an incredible motion, motion graphic designer. I texted Tim Minchin and I said, if we write a script about the bushfires, can you do it as a voiceover? He said, yep. And I, and I DM'd a couple of uh, philanthrop- philanthropic billionaires who follow me on Twitter and ask them if they had um, some resources to throw at a video like this. And they did. And um, so we pulled together a small amount, like $6,000 from from those blokes, put it together. And we created this 12 minute video explaining Australia's carbon uh, lobby problem from the Hawk era onwards. Um, and it kind of, it kind of just highlighted that the carbon lobby was being responsible for getting rid of any meaningful action on climate change right up until present day. Anytime a leader wanted to do something more progressive on climate action, the carbon lobby successfully either got rid of that policy or got rid of that prime minister. And it's so fascinating when you lay out the facts in a row like that, like as I was mentioning about when you have enough time to kind of see the world unfold in front of you, <laughs> you go, oh, fuck, this is where we're at. You know, this is, it was such a real powerful story told beautifully by Kara. And um, we we put it together and put it out online and we got, you know, 200,000 views on it and, and even more on Twitter. Um, so it was this striking revelation where I was like, fuck, you know, as comedians and as a group of comedians and a community of comedy people, we are powerful. We can make something that can uh, not change, but hopefully educate folks in a way that they'll be better armed with us with more information than, than what they had if they hadn't spent 11 minutes watching this video. So that was one of the examples of where that was an irrational fear video. Irrational fear videos are usually funny. This video wasn't particularly funny. It had some great jokes in it, um, like some great kind of um, snide remarks and wonderful kind of observations and hilarious kind of graphic juxtapositions. But the overall message was really serious and I was just extremely grateful for everyone who worked on it that we could pull it off and and put it out. And it took took about four or five weeks to put together, but um, we're very lucky in that um, all the good people I asked to do it, did it, and we we got it out. And so that was a moment where I thought, no, this is great. Like I, I this I felt like that was the one of the best things I've ever made, um, and it was that was just from sitting on the beach, effectively feeling grief for our lost country and our lost planet. And um, I think 
I, I think that's still, that makes me feel good because it makes me feel like I can do something. Um, and so that's, I think, one of the things that gives me a sense of power um, when at times when I feel completely powerless. I just have to remember, fuck no, I do have power. I just need to pull the levers to get these things made and we can do it. Yeah, absolutely. I love that so much. And I, I love that video. It was incredibly powerful. And of course we'll, we'll link to it. Um, that reminds me of a conversation I was, I was having recently on the podcast with David Ritter, who is the CEO of Greenpeace. And he was saying, you know, hope is in part figuring out where can I have the biggest possible impact because to stay sane and functional and effective, we can't take on everything, right? And, <laughs> yeah. and so it's looking at like, okay, you know, what, what can I do and how can I do it as best as I possibly can? Where can I go as big as I possibly can as, a, as, as my own personal like theory of change in the world? And I think, you know, that's what your career is a testament to. Like you can be really funny and you can be really great at creating content and pulling people together and you can have access. You can have people on your DMs and on your phone that the average person <laughs> doesn't have and you can do something really powerful with that. Yeah. And I just think, you know, I, I think sometimes it, I forget that as well. You know, um, I think we all forget how powerful we all are, you know, and if we all could see where our power lies as individuals and what, what levers we can pull, what things we can leverage. I'm sure we, you know, we could do a lot, be a lot more powerful than we think we are. We all don't have to have jobs to, you know, pay our mortgage and we can, we can do other things as well. And I think, um, I think that's part, I mean, that's part of just being human. It's just trying to work out how you can get good things done using the power you have. We're going to be kind of starting to wrap it up here soon. And, and before I get into some rapid fire questions, I just, I just wanted to ask you as a comedian, as someone who has a social conscience and is in this space, like one of the things that I really love about comedy is, and laughter, right? Um, whether it's just between friends or, you know, it's being kind of handed to us on a silver platter professionally is like, it builds empathy. You know, we talked before about that tend and, and befriend response. And I was just curious, do you have any people, comedians that can be local comedians, they can be overseas or any shows that you would say have helped broaden your like aperture and in getting some perspectives that we don't yet have like really mainstreamed into our lounge room. So like, are there any indigenous or LGBTQ or just people that you think we need to be listening? These guys have important voices that you'd recommend. There are so many great voices that are coming out now because of new social media platforms um, like TikTok. And every day on TikTok, I discover a natural comedian who is a person of colour who I've never seen before. And particularly Indigenous voices, like really funny Indigenous comedians are on TikTok making great content. Um, there's one woman, uh, her name is Emily Johnston. She is, uh, I think her, her TikTok account is how to delete one. Uh, and she is just scathing anti-colonialist comedy. And I recommend her. She's really great. Um, my colleague in the United States, Francesca Fiorentini, we, we did AJ plus together. She's absolute hysterical. Also in the United States, um, there's an LA based woman comedian, Jenny Yang, who is also a community organizer and has worked in unions and her comedy is 
brilliant and scathing and worth checking out and following on social media. In Australia, there's another uh, Indigenous comedian, Craig Quartermain, who is constantly savage and funny and brutal and just wonderful um, comedian who has not only been a, a miner, like a uh, like a, I think he was a, a, a gold miner in Western Australia, um, and he's kind of he can straddle that great divide between um, inner city lefties and and uh, regional people who are working working real jobs. Um, he's brilliant. Um, Andy Saunders is also brilliant. Um, and like, if you are at the kind of top of the list, one of the best Indigenous creators in Australia is uh, Nakia Louie. Her plays she writes for Sydney Theatre Company and other stuff she creates are just eviscerating Australian culture in a way that is so refreshing and interesting. Um, she's a real powerful voice and like I think she's she's just great. Like I try to I try to get Nakia Louie to do stuff in a rational fear all the time, but it just doesn't it doesn't work out for some reason. And um yeah, Nayuka Gori on Twitter. She's she's so funny. Um, she's one of the funniest Indigenous voices. Uh, and in terms of uh, queer voices, I love uh, Kirsty Wiebeck uh, on Twitter. She's hysterical. Um, I feel like Zoe Coombs-Ma is always creating interesting, compelling, shape-shifting work that you can never second-guess. Uh, and her... Comedy is just uh, mind blowing and so clever, and works on so many levels that she's one of the best comedians in the world. And we've got her right here in Australia. And you need to, if you don't know Zoe Coombs Ma, you need to go research her and watch her live shows, watch her Amazon Prime shows. Um, yeah, and then in terms of like big brain stuff, Alice Fraser who is an Australian podcaster, stand-up comedian. She is super clever and her arguments are nuanced and deep. And if you like your comedy with an academic tinge, Alice Fraser, who is also a lawyer, is also brilliant. She often does Irrational Fear. James Colley, who is the head writer of The Weekly and Gruen Transfer, um, he's a part-time astrophysicist <laughs> and like so I look this there's, there's so many uh, so many of my contemporaries who I'm very privileged to kind of um, interact with Sammy Shah he is a Pakistani born comedian got ran out of his country from the Taliban uh, he lives in Melbourne and is uh, a journalism academic as well as a comedian and he is one of the funniest stand-ups in Australia and underrated like if we were to do a daily show now, I would ask, you know, if I, so if a network said, who would you get to host? I'd say Sammy Shah, she should host this. Um, he's just absolutely brilliant. Um, and, oh, look, there's just, I mean, there's so many. Like, yeah. I realize it's a bit of an unfair question in a way, but I just knew that you would actually have <laughs> a thoughtful answer to it. And so I was like, just tell me who you think is funny that we should be listening to who, who you know, who, and, and who come from backgrounds where often those voices aren't heard as much as they need to be. Yeah, I mean, it, there's a great um, a great podcast called um, Bobo and Flex, um, which is hosted by Flex Mommy and her friend Bobo, and it's a kind of this cross cultural person of color kind of podcast. And like, there's so I, I subscribe to that on Patreon because I like it so much, and you always learn something new. Um, there's a, a guy called Travis, 
and his brother Texas. They have a, a podcast called Bro Originals. <laughs> and those guys are really thoughtful and funny and uh, and hilarious when it comes to kind of discussing um, uh, Indigenous culture in the space. And they talk from a, they're, they're two brothers who both are performers, uh, actors, dancers, theatre people, theatre makers, and they're I think they're really funny, um, and the podcast should come out more. I will say that it's uh, it comes. It's about once a month at the moment. But, oh, um, whenever you. the new one comes, it's um, it's really good. That's Bro Originals. I've written down so many names right now. We are going to try to link to all of these people in the show notes. <laughs> sure. I'm hoping I haven't like missed anyone. Thank you. That's just such an awesome list. And just to land this plane here, I want to start with a couple just quick rapid fire things. You can answer silly. You can answer. Serious can be whatever comes to mind. What is something that is making life better for you right now, Dan Illich? Uh, Pilates is making my life better. Yeah, right I would now. not have guessed that. <laughs> you know, I, I used to be really fit. Like it, like seven years ago, I was doing CrossFit. I was like 80 kilos. I was awesome. And then I had a few injuries in my ankles. So I've gone from the 30-something that did CrossFit three times a week to the almost 40-something that's doing Pilates three times a week. And that's that's kind of like and now I'm like fat, and, but I'm still strong. But, uh, but, <laughs> but it's like one of those things where it's like I've replaced CrossFit with Pilates. Welcome to my I've world. Got, because I've got – I've got CrossFit injuries and it's, yeah. So anyway, it's like one of those things. So yeah, Pilates is making my life better. Well, that's good to know. Um, and I think living, my, my, my fiance is, uh, make, makes my life better every day. She's the best. And I think living by, I'm very privileged to live in the Eastern suburbs, uh, by the beach. And that also makes my life better. Yep. I think as a kid, I always grew up in the Western suburbs of Sydney and all I ever wanted to do was live in the Eastern suburbs by the beach. And so as an adult, I afforded myself the privilege to do that. And that's why that makes Yet myself. another dream that, fulfilled. Yeah, another dream, another dream fulfilled. Yeah, take that Done. one off your turn in 40. It does make life better living by the beach. What's something you wish you were better at? I, I wish I was better at being more disciplined. I'm really, I really admire people who, who can shut their brains down in a way that they're not distracted by things and are more and are disciplined with their food, their workout, their their work regimes. Uh, some of my contemporaries are some of the most disciplined people in the world and they are also extremely successful for it. Like your Ronnie Changs, incredibly disciplined guy. Uh, Tim Minchin, incredibly disciplined guy. Hamish McDonald, incredibly disciplined guy. Uh, my friend Casey Anning, she's an incredibly dis disciplined writer. Uh, Maria Lewis is an incredibly disciplined writer. I wish I could be disciplined. That's what I wish I had more of. I'm not disciplined. I get distracted by shiny things very easily and uh, I run off to do them rather than saying no and just doing doing my, doing the job I should be doing. I love it. Um, is there something you've changed your mind about recently? Can be big, can be little. Yeah. Uh, dates. I used to think dates were disgusting <laughs> and no one should eat them. Okay. Not the romantic kind. <laughs> no, I'm talking about, talking about dried figs. Is that what they are? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm talking about the food. Yeah, the, the I'm talking about the delicious fruit wrapped around a, a sturdy little seed. But a date is is actually really nice, and you should be people should be eating more dates. Dan Illich <laughs> for dates, everybody. They're really good. Yeah, and also look to be honest, I also thought yoga and Pilates was a bit naff, and I shouldn't be doing it. But I mean, I think I changed my mind six months ago when I really needed to to kind of find a new form of exercise, and I'd resisted for so long. 
because I thought it was for not for me. I, you know, there's a perception out there, Lily, that Pilates and yoga are for middle-aged women with two kids mm-hmm. who just yeah. need some headspace. Are you talking about their sunshine? Yep. <laughs> but really, it's for me too. Oh, it's for you too. <laughs> Come join our class. <laughs> So now I'm just a middle-aged guy going to yoga and Pilates. You're that guy in the class that all the middle-aged women with two kids love. (laughs) Do they? Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm like, I don't think I should be here. This feels weird. This this feels not this not my place. But I'll just I'm just be here in my own head. Thanks. Look, you have been keeping us laughing for years and, of course, you know, throughout the pandemic. I'm curious, as as a fellow geriatric millennial, <laughs> do you have a favourite funny movie or TV show from the 80s or the 90s that still makes you laugh? Oh, look, without a doubt, I love The Blues Brothers. That's yeah. my favourite film of all time. <laughs> yeah, The Blues Brothers is my favourite film of all time. That always makes me laugh. I know it from start to finish. I know every single line, but it still surprises me, not only because it's funny, but it's also technically difficult to pull off. Um, I really enjoy it. And I wish I, I hope in my career I get to make a film like it one day. So in terms of you and your work and where people can follow you and find you and go listen to more if they have enjoyed this conversation, which I sincerely hope you have, uh, where can we find you and, and, and get more damn? Yeah, head to www.arationalfear.com and listen to the podcasts. Become a sign up, uh, send me your email, and every week I'll send you a new podcast and a new funny video. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter and all the other inter- internet social media places, which is at Dan Elich or at Irrational Fear. And um, yeah, that's where I'm at. That's where I'm pumping, pumping out the content. Dan, thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for making me laugh and making me think and making me take humor seriously. Lily, thank you so much. It's so nice to talk to an old friend who is also has also done their homework. I mean, you really made me think in this interview. It was very hard. It was hard work. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. This has been The Remakers, a podcast by Australia Remade. We celebrate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and cultures at the very heart of what it is to be Australian. That is 60,000 years as the oldest continuing civilization on earth. I record this podcast from Dara country, which is just north of Sydney. I want to pay my deepest respects to elders past, present and emerging on this land. I also want to thank my collaborator-in-chief and sometimes special guest co-host, Millie Rooney. Also a huge thank you to our producer, Anna Wilson, and our chair, Louise Tarrant. If you like our theme song, it is by the Duke of Norfolk. You can learn more about Australia Remade and get links and show notes over on our website. That's australiaremade.org and click on the podcast tab. Follow us so you never miss an episode. Be sure to spread the word. If you're feeling extra amazing, you can rate and review Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We will see you next time.